Welcome back into the Royals Farm Report. My name is Joel Penfield, joined as always by Alex Duvall. Happy World Series Day, man. Happy World Series Day. I am... Oh my gosh, I can't tell you how bad I'm rooting for the Braves. I know people have their issues with the organization at the moment. I get it. But the Astros and their whole cheating deal, this makes it like if you are super um, into not liking the Braves, this is a really tough World Series to watch, I guess. So I'm rooting for the Braves to beat the Astros because the just can't stand the faces of like half that lineup anymore. Um but again, kind of a um, tough World Series, I guess, if you're super into hating the Braves. Uh, I'm rooting for the Braves for a, for mainly the reason you laid out of, I don't want to see the Astros succeed and win. I, I, we don't need that. But to see it, because I want to see Freddie Freeman get a ring, for one thing. You know, you know, light, you know, career brave to this point. You know, just one of the all-around best dudes in the game. Uh, easy guy to root for. And then to see Brian Snitker, who's a lifer with his organization, you know, worked his ass off for 35 years as a minor league coach, as a, you know, an assistant, you know, assistant coach at the major league level to finally be a, uh, be the manager all within the Braves organization, kind of a a couple of good storylines that you easily root for here. And we're recording as game one has started, it's in the top of the second. So by the time you listen to this game, one will have concluded, but, if you hear any commentary from us, it's because we're, we're watching it live. And man, how about Jorge Soler making some history here uh, to start out, uh, start out game one of the World Series, hitting a homer, uh, first ever game one, top of the first leadoff homer in World Series history. How about that? That is insane. Um, something about former Royals leading off their respective teams World Series and home with a home run or something like that, right? Right. Um, I mean, it, it feels just just way too fitting that he would go from being one of the worst hitters in the sport at this year, playing in Kansas city, gets traded to Atlanta. And then he's hitting leadoff homers in the world series. Yeah, I was. So before the world series started, I looked it up. I did not realize that Jorge Soler was so good in Atlanta that he got his season weighted runs created plus back up to 100, which means he was a perfect league average hitter for the year which is somehow remarkable. I don't know how he physically hit well enough to make that happen, but he was on a, he went on a tear when he arrived in Atlanta and it never really stopped. And we're seeing that now in the postseason. and uh, good for him. Everybody's favorite for a player um, somehow has one season with better than three and a half F war, two seasons with negative F war. So that's impressive, but everybody's favorite for a player out here hitting lead off home runs in the world series, which is, outstanding really 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 fun to watch and I was kind of wondering about that as we headed into the game with lefty uh Framber Valdez on the mound if the Braves righties wouldn't be able to take advantage of that and as soon as um he took the mound the first inning it was a home run a single and then a double uh by the Braves righties the only out they got he got early on was Freddie Freeman a lefty so um should be a great series that first inning has anything to say about it yeah and and a lot of uh, the, the interesting thing early on has been a lot of balls hit in the air off of Framber Valdez, who has one of the, if not the highest ground ball rate in the major league. So that's, that's certainly an interesting development here early on. Yeah. Chuck Morton pitching for the Braves tonight too. Um, another guy who super easy to root for really, really hoping he gets his ring here because Charlie Morton, one of my favorite pitchers in baseball still got it. What is he? 36, 37 years old, still got it. So, 
Still run his fastball up there. Awesome curveball. Seems to be a good dude. So rooting for him as well in this series. Like you said, the Braves are just full of guys that are easy to root for, especially after Ronald Acuna Jr. went down. Uh, Jock Peterson said, you know, he gets there and it's all doom and gloom. He's like, hey, like, what are we doing? We still got baseball to play. Um, like, you guys want to quit now or we just want to, you know, keep playing, see what happens. And here we are in the World Series. Can you imagine if they had Acuna still in this lineup? Oh I mean, oh, I mean, that, they'd be line, so much fun to watch. And this lineup just bangs. Like, they just have all season. Even when they were still kind of middling and you just couldn't, they just couldn't find their own way, even with Acuna in that lineup, they'd still just hit. And then Acuna goes out. They bring in Jock, Eddie Rosario, Adam Duvall, and Jorge Soler, and they, the lineup just doesn't miss a beat. It, it's pretty remarkable what they've been able to do. And um, it's, it's just like we're gonna, it's like from Moneyball. We're gonna recreate him in the aggregate. Yeah, we we cannot <laughs> replace Ronald Acuna Jr. We can recreate him with Jock Peterson, Jorge Soler, and Adam Duvall. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. Good for the Braves. Yeah. So. I wrote today, Joel, about Andrew Benintendi. I want to talk to you about Andrew Benintendi because it seems like everybody's in a hurry to get Andrew Benintendi extended. And my biggest, my biggest thing with that that I wrote today, Joel, is I don't – like the reason you extend guys is to, to potentially get a discount. Now, you might end up overpaying if they underperform, but the idea is if we extend him now while there's still time on his contract, we could potentially save some money on the back end. I'm asking you this, Joel, if you're Andrew Benintendi, and by the way, this is all speculative. This isn't even the most important point. But the, to begin the conversation, what does he owe the Royals? Why would – if you're Andrew Benintendi, what is the benefit of signing that extension now versus what could be the cost to you later on? I guess it depends on how much he actually likes playing in Kansas City. Like, he was traded here, so it's not like – so, like, he was kind of, like, forced into it basically, right? it depends on how much he actually believes in what the, like their whatever contention window they have. Cause obviously winning games is important. He's been to a world series. He has a ring under his belt. So winning baseball is something I'm sure he wants to be about. So, I mean, I'm sure there's some factors there, but he doesn't owe the Royals anything. He was traded to him. This is the last year of his contract. He can just play this out and go and see what the, the market has for him. If he has a good year, because uh, Kent mentioned it last week, Therese Paler, this this goes to baseball as well. The late great Therese Paler, the contract year is undefeated. He has a he goes out and balls out this year. If he plays with an extension, then you know it you know they're they're it's just great for the Royals. But if he goes out in his contract year and his walk year, balls out, probably get more money than the Royals are willing to give him. So that's where I'm at with Ben Intendi is you know, in his career, only once has he been better than two and a half war, um, depending on who, what you look at. In 2017, he was worth 2.8 B war, so baseball reference. Um, but otherwise, across the board, 2018 is the only time he's been better than a two and a half win player, which is fine. It's good. It's serviceable. But if I'm looking at, if, if from Benintendi's point of view, he's been super consistent. Now, it's not been consistently great. He's been very consistently above average as a, as a Major League Baseball player. I'm not worried if I'm Benintendi about playing worse than I did last year. I'm not worried about losing money this next season. And if I do, I'm still 28 going into 2023, sign a one-year deal for $12, $13 million, and then see if I can get a contract when I'm 29 in 2024, right? His youth 
is on his side here. If I'm Benintendi, I'm in no hurry to sign a, a cheap team-friendly extension. And if I'm the Royals, I'm not signing you to a big extension. I'm looking for that cheap team-friendly extension three years, $42 million. And I don't know if I'm signing that if I'm Benintendi. I'm probably not eager to sign that for any reason. The only thing I could see is, let's say they scrap this year of his deal and make it a four-year, $60 million deal starting in 2022. Um, and then he gets a $5 million raise in 2022, and then the extension on the other side of it. But my problem with the Benintendi extension, I don't want it to come off like I don't like Benintendi. I don't want it to come off like I don't like the player. I think he's going to demand more money than he's worth extending for right now. And if he comes out and balls out in 2022, then work something out. I, I, sure. But I don't know why you would rush to give him an extension. Potentially, like let's say he is bad next year. Then you're locked into another bad deal along with Hunter Dozier, along with, um, um, oh, I guess Mike Miner and Carlos Santana are coming off the books. So that may not be too big of a deal. But I just, with the, with the way the Hunter Dozier contract looks, I'm not entirely sure how eager I would be to jump the gun on Ben Intendi as well. I think if this, if the hitting prospects in the Royal system were like it was in 2018, 2019, but we didn't know what we had in some of these young guys that are getting close to ready, I'd be all in on getting Ben Intendi on a three for 42 or the four for six. Like you said, I think it'd be a no brainer because that'd be stability in a lineup. You have your left fielder for the next four, you know, three plus years that you can hopefully build something and then hope that guys can come in and backfill after. With what the Royals have coming now, one, it's going to be cheaper because they're all going to be pre-arb. And by the time Ben Intendi, that contract is over, these dudes are just now going to be getting to arbitration. So you're, you're saving a little bit of money for a small market team. I think it makes sense in that regard. And I think the ceiling of some of these guys is higher than what you're going to get at Andrew Benintendi at a cheaper price. So it's not, and, I, and I'm not saying that I wouldn't like Andrew Benintendi extension, I think some sort of veteran stability is, is perfectly fine. And I think that that helps on a, on a club like this, but I'm not going to, I'm not all in on it. Like I would, I would have been maybe two to three years ago. Well, and I look at it from this point of view too, you know, um, with the guys they have coming up, like you said, like Nick Lofton could go play left field in theory. Like they have guys who can go play the outfield, even if they're not outfield prospects. I could also see where if you're the Royals, if we lock up Ben Intendi, we know what we're going to get. So we don't, you know, you may not get, you know, an all-star at any point in time, but you guarantee the money, you guarantee like a two, two and a half win player. And then you can trade Nick Lofton. You can trade Kyle Isbell. You can trade Austin Cox. You can trade, you know, one of these other guys who seems to be sort of borderline expendable and then see what you can bring back. Um, in return and you can kind of you can move assets that way if that's the plan okay a benintendi extension makes more sense but that's what they got going on right now i just i don't see the need to rush it and it seems like there's a lot of momentum building towards it like people keep talking about it they keep bringing it up and you know at first i was like yeah whatever and then i was like yeah probably not and then i'm like hey what why are we still talking about this like it is the world series is on like you said and people are still like hey we need to get Benintendi extended or what would, what would a Benintendi extension look like? Not, not even acting like it would be like possible that they don't even try to extend him. I'm like, honestly, if you gave me the option, a three-year extension worth 42 million or trade him, trade him. 
let's see what you can get back. Like, let's do something else. Like, I just th- there's no upside for me to to Andrew Benintendi, which is which is fine. He's a very consistent. You know what you're going to get from him. Like, I don't think Benintendi will be bad in the next four years. It's just I don't know. I don't know why we're in such a rush to get him extended. Like, let's just see what happens. Let's see what he does next year. You can trade him in July. You can extend him. You can sign him later. Like, it doesn't have to be right now. And, and I certainly think it, the trade him option is what's interesting here. I think if he scuffled at the end of the year, I th- there's not going to be anybody there. He was awesome in September. Like, he hit the crap out of the ball all over the place. Like, he was like the 2018 Andrew Benintendi that was on the starting lineup in the, the World Series for the Red Sox, right? I wonder if a team, you could find a team that would buy high on that. That would, that would buy on that and hope that maybe you can get something in return. And I don't expect a, a crazy return, but you certainly could get something, especially if a team needs an outfielder. There, there, would, there probably would be a team desperate enough out there that they would make a move for one year of Andrew Benintendi with maybe an extension, especially if it's a team that's maybe a little closer to contending and they want to have that stability. I'm sure there's a trade partner out there, and him having the month that he did to end the year – maybe makes it a little more enticing. I don't know. I'm no expert here, but I certainly think that the end of the year definitely helps any sort of prospect of that. You know who I was thinking about as a potential uh, trade candidate for one, Andrew Benintendi earlier today? Who? Your Seattle Mariners. Certainly would make a lot of sense. Losing Kyle Seeger, your left-handed bat, potentially going to lose Mitch Haniger out of right field. Trade for Benintendi, plug him in and left. You have Kyle Lewis and Jared Kellenick coming back. Julio Rodriguez probably June. And so you would have you would have some options there. Kyle Lewis, a bit of an injury history, so some depth as well. Um, the, the Mariners, to me, make a lot of sense if you're just looking for a one-year rental piece that you don't have to give a bunch of money to. Totally that way, in 2023, you can roll with Kyle Lewis, Jared Kellenick, and Julio Rodriguez – Regardless of Seattle's interested or not, I think you're right. I think there could be teams like that out there who say, hey, we're kind of in between. We think we can compete now. Um, we would just like to – kind of like the Royals were last year with getting Benenton. It's like the exact same situation. Go find a team who's more like that, and then I'm with you, man. I'm, I'm for play the kids. I'm, I don't know. I, I just – I don't know how big of a hurry I'm in to extend a guy with, with really like no upside. Like I don't know – like, what do you think Benintendi's ceiling is? Like, do you think he can be 2018 Benintendi again? I don't. The athleticism Maybe. isn't there. Like, he's yeah. he's not going to steal 20 bases. He's not going to hit 20 home runs. What's the upside? So, I don't know. I just think there's better options than extend him right now for all the money. Yeah. So. And, and if they want to let him just play out this year, that's fine, too. Like, I, yeah. I'm not I'm not anti-play Andrew Benintendi in left field every day 2022. Like, I'm not, I'm not anti that. Because I think there's still some value there, and he could be a nice, solid, like we talked about, this a nice, solid, consistent force in your lineup, hitting sixth or seventh in your lineup. And you know he's going to get on base. You know he's going to hit about 270, 280. He's going to pop you 12 to 15 homers. He's going to play a decent enough left field that he's not a liability. I'm okay with that. And if they want to let him walk or they maybe want to talk about uh, you know, maybe a free agent extension at maybe that two to three year mark after this year, just to see if we can get a full year of healthy Andrew Benintendi, because that's part of it too. 
he was so inconsistent at times because he wasn't healthy for portions of the season. And when he was either coming back from injury or when he was playing hurt, he was almost unplayable. Not even almost, he was unplayable so bad. When he was healthy, he was really good and was one of the better hitters in this lineup consistently all year. So, and I, I think that's my main hangup is you extend him now, but are we, are we for sure that you're going to get a healthy Andrew Benintendi to play 150 games this, this next year? Yeah, no, it's another fair point. And, and honestly, looking at the Royals outfield right now, it is. It's funny how I guess like the one position they haven't been able to produce from within. It's like not that it's the easiest position to produce, but it's I mean, it's easier to hide hitters out there than anywhere else. And they just haven't been able to do it. It's kind of an interesting thing. Um, Kyle Isbell does appear to be a very Andrew Benintendi like piece with slightly more athleticism, uh, in my opinion. So they, they maybe they've got one there, but it's interesting the way that's played out. Um, Benintendi think, to me, go ahead. I do think, I think Kyle Isbell is going to get a lot more run with the big league club this year as he should. Uh, I think he should be playing right field pretty consistently. He's like your four, maybe your fourth outfielder and can move wit around depending on, you know, what they do with some of the other young guys. But, Oh, okay. Like we talked about, you know, and I think we talked about this last year too, when the Royals traded for Benintendi is Kyle Isbell is not that different from Andrew Benintendi. Like they're, they're pretty similar profiles of players. Kyle Isbell is just a much better defender and a little more athletic. If Kyle Isbell, like, like if he comes into spring and tears it up, like he did to make the opening day roster and he hits to, you know, kind of what we expect, if he can be above average hitter, and play a really good corner outfield, trade Andrew Benintendi in July and let a team and, and see what you got. Cause I don't think the Royals are going to, are going to contend enough to where they can, they think they need to, they need to hold on to Andrew Benintendi. Like you can probably go trade him at the deadline for a decent, you know, a, a decent return to a desperate team that needs an outfielder like Atlanta or something like that. Like a team that loses a key piece. You can do that and roll out with Kyle Isbell, who has a much higher ceiling than Andrew Benintendi as a similar player. Yeah, I don't disagree with that at all. I think um, I think Kyle Isbell. That's and maybe that's part of my fear with Ben Intendi's. I'm a little jaded with how the Royals have handled their veterans. Is like I don't want anything in the way of Kyle Isbell playing every day in 2022. You want to sit him against Chris Sale, okay? You want to sit him against you know John Lester, okay? But he needs to be playing every other day when there's not a wicked lefty on the mound. I want to see Kyle Isbell go out there and get a get a chance because even in September. Played really well, but he played every other day. It's like, let's see what he can do. Let's, let's let the kids play, man. Let them go out there and have some fun. Let them go out there and learn and, and struggle and then get better. Um, but that's really what I want to see. And if Benintendi gets in the way of that, I'm just going to be throwing things all summer um, until it doesn't get in his way anymore. So I don't know. But it, it, the Royals are – it's just something the Royals are going to do. Like We talked about it with Kent last week. Like The Royals are going to make roster decisions that we're not happy about, no matter how it plays out. Like they're, they're, we're going to be, we're looking in May and we're like, crap, Hunter Dozier's out there again over Nick Prado, like, or Ryan O'Hearn for some reason is out there again. The go, the ghost of Ryan O'Hearn is in right field again. Like it's going to be stuff like that. That is if Ryan O'Hearn takes a single at bat in right field next year. I will double down on my bet with Josh Kaiser and I will jump on the field shirtless. Not only will I sit behind home plate shirtless, I will run out there to, in right field shirtless. And no, I'm just kidding. I probably won't do that. But. At KCPD, watch out for this man. 
God almighty, Joel, if they run Ryan O'Hearn out in right field next year with Cal Eldred on the bench coaching the pitchers, I just I'm not gonna be able to watch. Like I'm gonna have a really hard time turning the games on. Um if that's the case. I mean, that would just be brutal. Let's talk about something happier because I need to talk about something happier. Our guy at Royals June on Twitter um, shared an Instagram story from Asa Lacey. Hit 100 miles per hour in the Arizona Fall League. 100. Joel, I don't think people understand when we talk about his stuff. Like, I know the walks are bad. I know the walks are bad. Joel, his stuff is disgusting. Dayton Moore wasn't kidding. He has top 1% in the world stuff. Among major league pitchers, top 1% in terms of stuff. It is sick that he can throw baseballs. Like It's not even the just the projectile that's coming out of his hand. It's the delivery. It's the deception. It's how he hides the ball. It's how close he can get and how far behind the left-handed hitter's head he gets. I mean – 100 with his stuff. Oh, he's going to be a freak if he can ever just figure out how to get it somewhere near the strike zone with consistency. Have I told you about what uh, my experience watching him uh, in college uh, when he was at AM? No. So uh, Oklahoma State played in the Frisco Classic, and this was in February of 20. Like, you know, everything was shutting down, you know, pretty soon after. But, um, it was Texas A&M, Illinois, UCLA, and Oklahoma State, and like a little round-robin thing in Frisco. So Oklahoma State had just gotten shellacked by UCLA uh, in the afternoon game. Illinois and A&M are playing at the night game. And they're like, oh, Asa Lacey's throwing. So I stuck around for probably four or five innings and, and watched. And he just – like, have you watched the, – the best way I can describe it as I'm sitting there hysterically laughing in the stands watching him just destroy these hitters – have you seen you ever watched the footage of Kerry Wood in his 20 strikeout game? Like the just helpless, I mean, I, I don't even want to call them swings, like just the hacks that guys were taking that was just like they had no shot. Um, that's basically what Illinois looked like against Asa Lacey. Like it was just, it did not matter what he was throwing, what pitch it was, what count. He was getting a helpless, helpless swing. So I was like, oh, this stuff is different. And then you see what he was doing when he was anywhere near the strike zone in high A. He was getting those types of swings. And now in the fall league, hitting a hundo. And the swing he got on that one was pretty ugly, too. And it was a pitch at the guy's neck. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's certainly exciting. And like I said, if he can get anywhere close, man, it, it is just special. It really is. I was yeah. so bad. I was so bad I hadn't deleted my personal Twitter account because one of my best receipts – in February, right after that game against Illinois, I tweeted and said, uh, Asa Lacey, actually, no, Joel, it was in October. Well, when we started our draft research in October, I said, Asa Lacey might be the guy at number four. And people were lighting me up because at the time, oh, who went at the top of that draft in 2020? Let me, let me pull it up. Um, Austin Martin was, was one of the yeah. guys he was there. Um, but I can't remember who, but anyway, people were lighting me up on Twitter saying that, you know, Asa Lacey was like a top, you know, seven or eight prospect at best and shouldn't have been in, you know, whatever, number four. So then fast forward to February of 2020, he does it. Oh, Torque it was, was Torkelson. 
It was Torkelson, and then Orioles went uh, Kerstad. Yeah, but oh, Emerson Hancock was the other pitcher. That was, Hans- that oh, was Max, the guy. Max, I think. My- Max Meyer was also at the top of that draft. But like in October, people were Emerson Hancock um, and Spencer Torkelson, and I said Asa Lacy might be the guy. And then in February after the game against Illinois, I was like Asa Lacy's probably the guy at number four. And then it's funny because as the year went on, I was like, eh, the control. I was like, I don't know for sure. And then, well, th- so after that was after his third or fourth start, and then everything hit the fan. We didn't get any more. And so we went on through that spring without, you know, a whole season. And I just remember thinking, I was like, man, I don't know. And it's funny because after I was driving the Lacey train all off season, I kind of, I was a little disappointed they didn't take Austin Martin at first. Um, I really, really wanted them to take Austin Martin. But here we are. Asa Lacey stuff is some of the best in the world. And like I said, he gets anywhere near the strike zone. He's going to be uh, potentially the ace of a staff in like that Blake Snell mold. Yeah, I was about to say, like, is it? I don't think it's that crazy a hot take to think he he has the chance to be the best of any of these dudes. And it's I don't even think that's yeah, like just based on pure stuff, like it's it's ridiculous. Like he might also turn into Andrew Miller and be a two inning reliever, but. Um, I do think that the the Blake Snell outcome, and again, maybe he's not exactly Blake Snell winning a Cy Young Award, but five really, really, really good innings and turned over the bullpen. You did your work. Good job, buddy. And now we're going to let the bullpen take over, um, pitch to a 2-5 ERA in five innings, and we're going we're to be okay. Yeah, I'm good with that. We, we um, talked about him on one of the last episodes about Suley and what we want to see from him in the – uh, in the fall league, and he just goes out and hits 462 foot mammo over the over the wall in dead center, uh, which of course was preceded by a swing out of his shoes on a slider that basically spiked in the dirt in the other batter's box. But the the full Silvio Matias experience in in one at bat. Yeah, I don't know what the count was when he swung at that slider, but here's my thing with Silvio Matias. Let's say it was a 2-0 slider that he swung at, I don't care. Yeah. Like the Stephen A. Smith meme. Stephen A. Smith meme, we don't care. We don't care, silly. 2-0, swing out of your shoes. We don't care if it's 2-1. You're going to get two more. Come unglued, silly, because on the next pitch, we saw it, Joel. That's why we don't care. Then he can hit one 462 feet, and it totally changes the dynamic of a baseball game. Like, I think sometimes with plate discipline, we get, and I've mentioned this before, I won't go on the whole tirade, we so poorly confuse plate discipline with approach and swing and miss issues. Sully Matias has a lot of swing and miss issues. He's going to swing and miss a ton. Sometimes he has a bad approach, but I really don't think it's plate discipline in terms of like being able to identify balls and strikes when he's being selective is that bad. Like I think he sees the zone pretty well. I think sometimes he's a little too aggressive and not like, anticipating seeing pitches like he thinks I'm just going to swing at everything and sometimes and he does he by bar none he has swing and miss issues but that's part of the game I think if we can control his approach to where Suli we don't have to swing at everything if you get ahead in the count if you give an advantageous count by all means Suli come unglued we don't care like I said we don't care but we don't have to be in that way oh oh we don't have to be that way one oh you get up in the count a little bit by all means but um, so I think those, those types of things are correctable and it's like almost the exact same thing as Bobby Witt Jr. Less swing and miss issues, less power, but like early on in Bobby Witt Jr.'s 
double uh, A season, he was just swinging at everything. Like that's not bad pitch ID. And his issues early on weren't swing and miss in the idea that like pitchers were blowing strikes by him. He was swinging at balls that weren't, she shouldn't have been swinging at because he's trying to do too much. So if the Royals can coach that out of those two, Suli specifically, where you don't have to try to do this all the time. Um, I think Suli's got a big league opportunity ahead of him. Again, even if it's in that uh, Miguel Sano role where it's be a league average hitter, hit for a ton of power, strike out a bunch, but as long as you're hitting 30 home runs, we don't care. If if you haven't, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the video yet, just you don't even have to watch it. Just just put your phone down, turn the volume up, and just listen to the contact. Like there, there is the old scouting cliche of it just sounds different. And that is like you can't define it better than watching Suli Matias hit because when it just sounds different, it comes off the bat different. Some dudes are just built that way. And just the way they swing, it's just a sexy sound coming off the bat. And when he gets a hold of one, good God, look out in the outfield. <laughs> I think it was Alec Lewis that, that tweeted something like that. Uh, Palm tree in Peoria was shaking, <laughs> thinking about what uh, it hurt it and what, and thinking about what uh, Suli did to it in spring training last year. Yeah. He's kids. Incredible, man. He's such a good kid. Um, really rooting for him, really pulling for him. He's done basically exactly what we said he needs to do. Go out, bop some home runs, show off the power, keep the strikeout rate under 30%. He's doing exactly that. Um, so doing exactly what we've asked him to do, and if he continues to do that throughout the year, I really think there's an argument to be made that you got to protect him on the 40 because somebody will Victor Reyes him. Somebody will Ellis Luciano him. Somebody will draft him, wait for him to get hurt, which inevitably will happen, Put him on the 60-day IL, and bye-bye. You're ours. Next year, you go back to double-A, we try again. Um, so we'll see. Um, as of this moment, I don't know that he requires protecting, but he keeps hitting like this in the fall. Like He's going to make them reconsider. Another guy who's Rule 5 eligible who isn't going to get protected, and he won't get drafted either, Nate Eaton is hitting the crap out of the ball. You talk about like the, the fringe prospect – who goes to the fall league really shows out and potentially puts himself on the radar. Nate Eaton has looked really good, Joel, and he's playing some shortstop. I just, I, I've always wondered about Nate Eaton. I probably shouldn't have left him off our mid season list, but he was just so mediocre as a 24 year old at high a that I was just like, whatever. There's no elite tools. He's got a great arm. He's a great runner, but nothing elite. And so you wonder, can the hit tool carry him? Can he actually walk like he's been walking? He's old for the level. Can he be whip, can he can he whip Merrifield his way to the big leagues? I don't know. But if there's anybody in the minors who truly reminds me of Wit, because like Nick Lofton as a player reminds me of Wit, but he's 21 high A, like he's age appropriate, like he's you know a, he's a first round draft pick. If there's anybody whose skill talent and draft like his their prospect status reminds me of wit it'd be nate eaton maybe i you know could see a big league role for him but the fact that he's playing so well in the fall league is and the fact that he's there in the first place is really interesting yeah it, he, he's certainly an intriguing prospect i mean I, I i i've talked about this before but like i kind of have an affinity for dudes that like that have to basically grind and like they don't just wake up in the morning and hit 400 foot bombs like Sully Matias. Like they, you can tell like they have to work their ass off every single day 
to just get every single at bat to keep moving up like a Whit Merrifield. That's why I've been a huge fan of his since he came up, you know, going back to my youth, like guys like Scott Pudsednik and Willie Bloomquist, like those were the kind of dudes that I like to watch for the same reasons. And so he's an easy guy to root for in that regard. And with the way he's playing right now, I don't know what his future looks like, but if nothing else, it's a really good organizational depth piece that just serves as a good example for the younger guys that are going to come up and he's going to be teammates with. And I think that serves some value. There, there's always value for that in the organization. You're muted. Agreed. And I think that's one thing the Royals do a good job of is, is finding ways to maximize guys like Nate Eaton, Nicky Lopez, Whit Merrifield. How can we maximize the talent they have with the floor that they have and get them to serve some kind of a role in the big leagues? Eric Mejia came up, helped out a little bit. Um, who was it this year? Edward Olivares comes up, helps out a little bit, and is and is serviceable, right? You need more guys like that. You need guys who, when Mike Moustakas comes down, Chesler Cuthbert comes in, has a great year filling in for Mike Moustakas when the Royals are still in their competitive window. You need guys like Emmanuel Rivera who can come up and play a serviceable third base while, while you're in between starters or while your starters are out. And the Royals haven't like, I really don't know that they've done a good job of that overall, but it seems like when you have guys with tools who work hard and have some kind of a floor, the Royals have found ways to get them to the big leagues and, and find some success for them. So they have a type, for sure. They have a type, and Nate Eaton fits that type, which is why if there's anybody who could potentially make that way into the big leagues, it's Nate Eaton because, again, he is exactly the type of player the Royals have been – I've done a pretty good job of, of maximizing that talent. Yeah, no doubt about it. And another guy that's had a, a couple of decent outings there in the fall league is a Zach hockey. I think one of his, I don't know if it, how he did today, but I know his last start three and a third, uh, only one hit and three or four strikeouts. So something encouraging there. Uh, I know it's a guy that we kind of like, so that's, that's just another dude that's, that's, you know, putting in work down there and hopefully it continues to, as he moves up. Yeah, the, the problem with Zach Hockey this year is he is exactly the type of pitcher that you look for in the Rule 5 draft. Like, big stuff, has had some control issues, strikes some guys out, doesn't give up a lot of hits. Like, he is exactly what you look for in a Rule 5 pick. You put him in the bullpen, throw him an inning or two at a time. Today, Zach Hockey in the Fall League, three innings, one hit, four strikeouts. So... Again, you talk about a guy who's Rule 5 eligible who you normally probably wouldn't discuss, you know, 24, 25, high A, as protecting on the Rule 5. Like, he's going to – he might need it because somebody might draft him and he might be a good bullpen arm. So that's going to be – it's not a problem. It's a good problem to have guys that you need to protect, right? But the Royals have a lot of guys they need to protect, and maybe they're flaunting some of these guys off in the fall league as trade bait, trying to, to you know, one last – ditch effort to raise their trade value, but it's going to create an interesting problem when they have to protect four five, six more guys and only have three more spots on the roster. Yeah. That the, the crunch there is what's going to be really interesting. And I think there's, there's, there's going to be some roster moves made. We're going to go, huh? But I think there's also going to be some that makes sense that will, that will open up more of those spots. You know, hopefully like a Ryan O'Hearn doesn't have to be on the 40 man anymore and he can just go somewhere else. Um, and among others that I think have, have an opportunity there that get some of these young guys on there. Yeah. The little, little princess way for, for Ryan O'Hearn. 
Trim the fat. Trim the fat. Trim the fat. God, I hope they so badly win the World Series ends. The Royals have cut nine big leaguers off their roster. It's like, woo! Um, that's how you make bad teams better is you get rid of the bad players. I don't know if the Royals know this. That might be something that they're not familiar with is to make a bad team better, you just get rid of your bad players. I don't know maybe if they've heard of this, but so you don't you're have telling to me bad that, players. So you're telling me that you shouldn't have Omar Infante starting second base for you every day when you're making a World Series run. Now, hold on. Omar Infante almost made an all-star game, Joel. Hashtag vote Omar. Hashtag vote. Why are we hating on what, – what did Omar Infante deserve, do to deserve to be a part of this conversation? Omar Infante was a part of a pennant-winning club. Let's let's let Omar Infante have his moment in retirement. We're talking about Ryan O'Hearn here. Ryan O'Hearn needs to go join Omar Infante in Royals retirement. I will I will vote. I will lead the campaign to elect Ryan O'Hearn into the Royals Hall of Fame right now. We can elect him in today if they promise to DFA him as soon as he's elected. You can't be in the Hall of Fame and on the team. So if we can elect him into the Hall of Fame right now, will they get rid of him? The can't be on the team. And by the way, if Ryan O'Hearn ever hears this or knows I'm talking about him like this, I'm sure Ryan O'Hearn's a good dude. I don't have a problem with Ryan O'Hearn. It's not his fault. Ryan O'Hearn doesn't make the lineup. I have no issues with Ryan O'Hearn. I'm sure he's a great human being, a great son, brother, dad, whatever he is. I, Mike Matheny and J.J. Piccolo and Dayton Moore need to, to let him – Go be a great dude somewhere else in some other walk of life that doesn't include him playing first base or right field for the Kansas City Royals. That is my only thing. I, I really hate harping on guys because I feel like I'm harping on them. I don't have a problem with Ryan O'Hearn. It's not his fault. Ryan O'Hearn doesn't make the lineup. I'm not mad at him. It's it's the powers that be who are um, enabling him that I have a problem with. Well, Alex, uh, we might as well talk a little football. Um I feel like the only way I could describe what I witnessed on Sunday is the, what was it? The meme from freaking uh, Waterboy, like, Oh no, we suck again. Like that's, <laughs> that's how that felt. Um, I don't think we need to talk about it any more than that. That was a swift kick in the nuts is what that was. That was like, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Okay. So, First, I want to start here. Why do the Chiefs keep putting the defense on the field first? I don't really care what the analytics say at this point, and I am usually not that guy. Like, I am usually, whatever the analytics say, do that all the time. Like, I'm a big you-know-what football guy. I'm a big believer in not kicking field goals or generally not kicking field goals or punting or whatever. Go for it. You have Patrick Mahomes. Let's go for it. Um I don't know why you're putting your defense on the field first. It's like, hey, we want to be down seven to nothing. Why? Why do you want to be down seven to nothing? Like the whole idea of being able to double up requires you also to score a lot. And when your offense is even struggling a little bit, <clears throat> don't give your defense time to ruin the game. Put the offense on the field. Let's go score. Let's go dictate the pace of a football game, for God's sake. Um if nothing else, just to get, get back on your feet here for a little bit, doesn't have to be a permanent thing. But, my gosh, man, watching them be down 7 nothing every week, I get it. I get Mahomes' frustration. That must suck because every time he takes the field, like, dude, they ran the, they, ran, they had the ball for like six plays. They were down 14 to nothing. Like, it was that fast that happened. And, Joel, it was funny. 
I text Joel. Joel texts me before the game. He's like, how many yards is Derrick Henry going to run for? And I'm like, I guarantee you. I was like, Joel, I bet you whatever you want to bet. He will not run for 100 rushing yards. And after the game, I was like, somehow I was right and wrong. Like somebody put up, I think it was Jordan uh, Fisher. No, not um, Jordan. Um, Jordan Foote. Jordan Foote put up a, uh, the the meme of Thanos. And it was like, we held Derrick Henry to three yards per carry. What did it cost? Everything. It's like, that. yeah, you hold Derrick Henry to three yards per carry, and it's going to take a toll on your secondary. So um, somehow I was right about that and just wrong about what that would mean for the defense. Um, but, Joel, I got to tell you, that defense in the first half was so bad. Again, I don't know why you put him out there first. Put the offense on the field. Let's just see if we can dictate any kind of pace of the game um, that doesn't involve Mahomes getting you got knocked the you know what out. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, after like this is what uh, I'll be just full disclosure. This is one of the worst sports weekends I've experienced in a very long time with football. With Oklahoma State just getting boned in Ames again by officiating at the very end when they clearly got a first down and they didn't even look at it. But whatever, uh, it only cost Oklahoma State the game and a perfect record. It's fine. Um, it's not fine. And then I go on Sunday and I'm like, oh crap, now the Chiefs are going to play the Titans. And I know Derrick Henry's going to run for a billion yards, whatever. Uh, that wasn't the problem. It was everything else. But the Chiefs go down 14 nothing, And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to watch Red Zone for the rest of the day. Like I'm not subjecting myself to watching every down of this football game. And then they and then they pan over and Scott Hansen goes in. Mahomes rolls out left and he throws a pick. And I went, I'm not even going to watch Red Zone now. I'm going to go down into my basement, play video games, listen to music, and do everything but watch football. So I didn't even pay attention to really most of the game after that. And then I just go on Twitter. I knew the game was winding down. So I was just kind of seeing what Chiefs Twitter was doing other than colossally melting down on every level. And I just see, why is Mahomes still in the game? And I'm like, okay, what happened here? And I scroll two tweets down and I see him getting clocked. I'm like, what are we doing? You have a half a billion dollar quarterback in a four possession game with five minutes left in the fourth quarter. What are we doing here? Like th- that to me, just that just made me more mad than the result of the game, honestly. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this the back half of a podcast where hopefully nobody's listening because I'm going right. to say it. Andy Reid quit on this team earlier in the game and expected his players to keep going out there and competing. I love Andy Reid. I'm not going to criticize Andy Reid too often. Um, but when he kicked a field goal or tried to kick a field goal, they missed it from, okay, so I don't, you said you weren't watching the game. Chiefs are down 27 to three. Late in the third quarter, maybe they ran the punting unit on within range of a 56 yard field goal, ran the punting unit off, called timeout, ran the kicking unit back on there, down 27 to three, ran the kicking team back out there, missed a 56 yard field goal. At that point, Andy Reid had given up. He had given up on his team. And by the way, that's fine. You are getting the break speed off of you. I'm not saying he like quit on him. He just he he threw in the towel for that game. Again, I'm not I don't blame him. You're getting the break speed off of you. Nothing is working. I'm not saying this is like indicative of Andy Reid's character or anything like anything crazy. I'm just saying that game was over. Andy Reid knew it was over, which is why he considered punting in positive territory. And yet you're running Mahomes out there. I feel like teams sometimes like try really hard to make losses look better. It's like you lost. The game's over. It doesn't have to look better. I don't care if you lose 50 to nothing or 27 to 6. 
It doesn't matter. Get Mahomes off the field in the fourth quarter, especially before the O-line wears down. You have a chance to get your billion quarter, half a billion dollar quarterback hurt. That was, to me, negligence. It was it was almost like that. Like I think every athlete's been in a situation where things are going so poorly that you forget to think because you're in such shock of how bad things are going that you forget to think. And by, you know, in, in seconds, you know, like that, everything speeds up on you and you forget to like process stuff. I think that happened to the chiefs on Sunday and it almost cost them their quarterback in the process. Yeah. They, it seems like he passed concussion protocol and everything's fine, but it's more the principle of why is he still in this game? If you're just going to basically just go, let's just run off the clock and get out of here. Like at that point, put Henny in, put all the backups in, just get out of town, burn the tape, and and just move on. Move on to next week. The Royals do this for Salvi all the time. Down seven nothing in the fifth inning. Hey Sal, go get a shower. Go take a break. We'll see you again tomorrow, bub. Like we'll try again tomorrow. Now baseball, football, very different game. You, totally understandable. You can and you can reinsert players in the NFL. Um, I'm just saying, like it's not. It would not have been ridiculous to have Mahomes on the bench in the fourth quarter of that game. And man, I just whew. Anyway. Um, I was watching Joel the 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 betting lines for that Oklahoma State game. You know, I don't I don't bet much. I do I I love watching the lines. I love following the, the process of gambling. I don't bet much. Um I did see Oklahoma State, number eight team in the country, is in Iowa State, unranked. Not that Iowa State's a bad team. Not that I not that Oklahoma State's probably the eighth best team in the country either. But still, number eight versus unranked Iowa State. And they open as a seven-point underdog. This is what I don't understand about Vegas. How do you know? And by the way, they got beat. Vegas got whooped in that game because everybody's betting on Oklahoma State, which is, by the way, typically when you look at that, you're like, ooh, everybody's betting on Oklahoma State. It was a huge underdog and an unranked team. Like, typically when I look at that, I'm thinking, oh, Iowa State's covering. Like, Iowa State's going to beat the brakes off Oklahoma State. And they didn't. And I was watching the game. I'm like, what is what what is the point of having Iowa State minus seven in this game? When you saw Iowa State on the schedule, were you thinking, yep, yeah, that's a game we're going to lose? Yep. Okay. Yep. Purely from the perspective of we always have trouble in Ames, and it still goes back to the 2011 season when Oklahoma State was number two in the country. They're there on a Friday night. They lose in double overtime. They lose their chance to go to the national championship, where to this day I will die on the hill Oklahoma State was the best team in the country that year. That was Brandon Whedon, Justin Blackman, a defense that just forced eight turnovers a game. They would have gone in to the national championship and beaten the breaks off of LSU and won the national championship. I will die on that hill forever. And still, like, it gives, and the main thing, it's like one of those, like, the Ten Commandments of Oklahoma State football is don't kick field goals and aims. The reason Oklahoma State lost that game in 2011, I'm, I'm going on a tangent here, but I have to get it off my chest because it bothers me to this day. Quinn Sharp kicks a field goal to tie it or to take the lead with like two minutes left in the fourth quarter. And the ball goes over the upright. Like he, his leg was so strong. He kicked it over the right upright, which is technically, it's still good. Like it go as long as it goes over, it doesn't hit the upright. It's if the field goal is good. The referees looked at it. They reviewed it. They called it no, no good. Game goes into overtime. Oklahoma State loses. To the day, the field goal is good. So I think that still kind of sits in Oklahoma State fans' minds that going to Ames is going to be a dogfight. It always is, for one thing. And Oklahoma State's offense, it hasn't been really good this year. 
Like they they have some talent. Like our running back, like Jalen Warren's really good. Tay Martin's a decent receiver. But this team is more predicated on defense. Like it, it just that they have not been an offense that has been willing to that has shown an ability to be explosive and be able to put teams away on the road. And Iowa State lost a couple of games early. They're a really good football team, and they're really tough to beat in October, especially at home. So the line made a lot of sense. I, I thought maybe seven was a little strong. And so I, I thought Oklahoma State was going to cover. It was gonna, the game was going to be within a field goal either way to me. And it was a really well-played football game. It, I mean, both sides played really well. No turnovers. You know, pretty clean overall. And it just came down to the officials. And, of course, it came down to the officials because, of course, it was. What do you guys have this week? Uh, Kansas for homecoming. Oh, nice. So we, we open up. and that, So that was my thing. Like, after the game, obviously, I was pretty frustrated. Not that Oklahoma State lost. It was just the way they lost. And if you didn't watch the game, Oklahoma State had a fourth and two just beyond midfield with about a minute, minute and a half left or so, a like minute 15 maybe. They throw a little bubble screen to a wide receiver, two blockers in front. He gets hit about a yard from the goal line or from the line to gain. Line and everybody, like the pile ensues, it pushes forward. And his body and where he's holding the ball is beyond the 40-yard line, which was the line to gain. And the yellow line is on the 40-yard line. You can see from his, like, the bottom of his jersey up is beyond the 40, and they marked him a half yard short. They didn't even go back and review the spot. They just went with the call on the field, and it was first down Iowa State. Like The, the referees did the same thing to the Chiefs on Sunday, and you could see Mahomes' mouth. There's no way that's a first down. I guess it was the opposite, obviously. Yeah. Um, he's like, there's no way that was a first down. And Andy Reid, again, not challenging the play, which he's done that a few times this year. So, whatever. Um, yeah. The, referee, that, yeah. the referees in football in general this year have been awful. It has been so hard to watch football because the referees just ruin it every Saturday and Sunday, it seems. Yeah. And that play, I think, speaks to more like, why can't we have a sensor in the ball and the referee that's the side judge has a sensor that knows where the first down is. Like they have this technology in tennis. You very easily, I'm sure there's more hoops to jump through with football, but with all the technology that's available in the world, we still go off of the eyeball of a referee that barely knows what the hell is going on. to be And the index with. cards. The index cards. Yes. Here's my, let me get my tinfoil hat on. They can't rig the games. If they use this technology, Joel, they can't, they can't help Vegas if they have – seriously, okay, you tell me then why they don't use it. You tell me why we can't review a face mask penalty, something that is objective. It's not even like a subjective penalty. All face masks are objective and they're 15 yards. Fingers in the face mask is a penalty. You know why we can't review them? Because if we could, you can't rig the game. You know why they wouldn't let us actually challenge pass interference? You can't rig the game. I guarantee you – like. I'm not suggesting that like the whole NFL is scripted and that every single thing that happens is scripted, but for a fact, I think there is still problems. Yeah, I shouldn't say for a fact. I, I am 100% convinced there are still problems with the money getting in the way sometimes, and we can't fix the games a little bit if we don't allow the referees to have some wiggle room to make these decisions, and the NFL's in on it. I don't know how else – you tell me why we can't review a face mask penalty because the sensors in the ball, maybe that gets a little complicated. Maybe there's issues with that. Maybe I don't, I don't think there are issues with that, but maybe the face masking one is like my burden of proof. 
Like, if you really want to prove to me that you're trying to get gambling money out of football, A, don't let your teams sell the rights of their naming naming their stadiums to sports books. B, let's review the face mask penalties because if we can review that, something that is an objective penalty, then I'll be all in. Missouri is in Vanderbilt this weekend, Joel. If Missouri loses to Vanderbilt, we're not recording again until November or December. We're taking the month of November off. Y'all's defense is horrible, but I don't think they're that horrible to where they could possibly lose to Vanderbilt. The over-under in this game is 63-and-a-half. Now, I don't know if that's because they think that Mizzou's going to score. Like, if Mizzou scores 43, they think we're giving up 21 to Vanderbilt? Joel, I don't think Vanderbilt scored 21 points all year. They have two wins. They scored 30 against – man, they scored – they scored 23 against Stanford, 24 against Colorado State, 30 against Connecticut. Man, maybe they are putting up 21 on us. Oh, boy. Oh, the boy. Is it's still Vanderbilt. Yeah, Oklahoma State opened up as a 30-and-a-half point favorite against uh, against Kansas. And There's I, a lot of good college football in this week. I, um, like, can, can you check the over-under on that game? I'm, I'm just curious here. Yeah. Because I can't imagine it's more than 50. What time do you all play? It's a night game, 6 o'clock. Fifty-four and a half. Sounds about right. But I but I think that's more of like honestly, Kansas isn't gonna score. Like I know that people are gonna go, oh well, they put 23 on OU. OU has four freshmen in their secondary and their defense is terrible. So Oklahoma State is actually like a legit top 15 defense in the country. So they'll I don't I don't think they'll cover. I think they can win by four touchdowns, but 30 is too much for me. I, I don't think that you can watch Oklahoma State and think they can cover a 30-point spread. I haven't, I haven't watched a lot of Oklahoma State, but I don't necessarily disagree with you either. No, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good football on this week, Joel. We have Green Bay and Arizona on Thursday night for Thursday night football. But, like Devon, but Devonta Adams and Alan Lazard are out. So. I still think that'll be – like the, the overreaction, like, yeah, Devonta Adams is good, but – you have Hall of Fame, Aaron Rodgers. You got a good running game, a good defense in Green Bay. I think they keep that game close. But, I mean, that's that's a marquee matchup for us. We got Cincinnati and Jacksonville a few weeks ago. So, good Thursday night matchup as far as Thursday night football games go. Saturday, Michigan, Michigan State kicking us off at 11. Texas and Baylor also at 11. That's me. Um, I, was, I was looking at uh, the, the world's largest cocktail party takes place in the afternoon between Georgia and Florida. Um, I was looking, there's a, there's a good night game there. Well, Florida state Clemson guess could have been a good game in a, in an alternate universe. Well, Ole Miss Auburn could be kind of interesting. That's the one Ole Miss and Auburn play on Saturday night. That ought to be a good game. Penn, Penn state, state and Ohio state. state ought to be a good game. Like there's a chance we get a really good weekend of football. Um, I closed out before I could look at the Sunday slate, the Sunday slate, um, Steelers Browns, maybe not the best game in the world, but a meaningful game in terms of that division, the Titans and the Colts, another very important divisional matchup, um, Bucks Saints, another important divisional matchup, Cowboys Vikings could be a good, better game than people think, uh, Cowboys only a field goal favorite there in Minnesota and the Kansas city chiefs on Monday night football. I do think the Chiefs win that game. I think the Chiefs win that game handily, probably like 
34 to 20, 30, yeah, and, and yeah, the, you know, the, the Giants, Giants are not score late. Um, the Giants aren't very good. I think it's 34 20. The next week we have Green Bay. I think we win that game. I think we beat Green Bay 27 to 24 in Kansas City. So, Joel, the next time we record will be after that Green Bay game. Give me your prediction for the Chiefs for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think – I think that the, the Giants kind of shellacked the, the Panthers, but I think that speaks to more the Panthers coming back down to earth a little bit, and Sam Darnold's actually not that good. And so I, I think the Chiefs can win that one. I don't – like if they – no, the thing is if they make Danny Dimes look like Tom Brady – we're going to have like a, we're going to have some serious come to Jesus meetings in Kansas city when it comes to the, the, we already know the defense is bad, but if they make Daniel Jones look like a competent NFL starter, we really have some problems. I start like the, the chiefs man usually manage to get up for big games and Aaron Rodgers coming to town. Like you get Aaron Rodgers versus Mahomes. there. There's a, I think that game almost is like a coin flip. Like I, that one's going to be a field goal either way. Um, I think that put up a good fight. I, but I just, I don't know if I can pick Kansas city. They haven't beaten a good team this year. So the, the Browns are a good team. They're not a great team. They're good. The, um, well, let me, the rephrase advantage, that. let me rephrase that. They haven't beaten a contender this year. That's fair. They got, well, oh my gosh. Yeah. I don't want to talk about the chiefs past games anymore. It just frustrates me. Yeah. I will say the one advantage they have against green Bay at the moment is Devonte Adams and Alan Lazard being on the COVID list. Alan Lazard is unvaccinated. Alan Lazard probably won't miss that Chiefs game, but he could. If Devontae Adams – and by the way, I know the Chiefs got ripped by A.J. Brown last week, They and they got ripped by Mike Williams against the Chargers. The Chiefs actually do a decent job against the other team's wide receiver one. Like, like if you go back and look – like. I noticed it in a, for fantasy sports, like playing fantasy football, the Chiefs really – I went back and looked. Don't do a terrible job against opposing teams wide receiver one or your best player, like against Derrick Henry. Did a good job. Like they're going to they're gonna take away whatever it is you want to do, um, and then everything else will be open. For a fact, everything else will be open. But the number one thing you want to do is they usually do a good job containing um, – if Devontae Adams doesn't get to practice for two weeks, it probably doesn't matter too much. But again, a favorable matchup coming off the COVID list could potentially help the Chiefs in that game. I do think the Chiefs win that game, 27-24. I think, Joel, the next time we talk on this podcast, the Chiefs are going to be 5-4 and four, uh, with a meeting against the Dallas Cowboys coming up. And then after the Cowboys, it's the Raiders before we head into the bye week. So. Uh, Big, big stretch coming up here um, as we head into the down the the home stretch, the back half of the NFL season. The the best thing about the Chiefs being in prime time is mainly because we get to watch seven hours of commercial free football because NFL Red Zone is the greatest thing that sports media has ever come up with. Ever. It's the greatest invention. And Scott Hansen might have the best job on the planet. Scott Hansen, I saw one time it was like um, somebody put a picture of Red Zone. It was Scott up on the TV, and they said something about God being on TV or whatever. Like, Scott Hansen is my hero. Every Sunday, I sit down. I don't care if the Chiefs are playing at noon. I sit down, I turn on Red Zone, and I wait for Scott Hansen to come on and give me his morning address, and then I flip it over to CBS to watch Chiefs game. Like, And then 
every time the Chiefs get are getting close to the fourth quarter, I'm keeping an eye on red zone. I always, no matter what the situation is, I flip it over to red zone. We have reached the witching hour where wins become losses and losses become wins. Now, woo! I love it. I absolutely love listening to Scott Hansen get me fired up for football on Sunday. So the uh, witching hour, like two weeks ago where it was green Bay and Cincinnati were both trying to lose the lions had just kicked a game, a go ahead field goal. The Vikings went and kicked a game winning field goal and someone else could game winning field goal within two minutes. It was the greatest two minutes of red zone I have ever seen. It was just awesome. Yeah. Outstanding show. Like you said, it is the greatest thing sports media has ever given us. And I think what makes it great is Scott is getting these updates live as we are. And so like every now and then you'll hear like legitimate surprise in his voice. He goes, Oh, look at that. Like as we're seeing it live, he's reacting to it with us. It's not most of it's not planned. And when it is planned, when he knows he's generally kind of quiet. So like, you can always kind of tell what's about to happen. And like, typically like when I'm watching for fantasy purposes, like, let's tune in if I go say I'm playing the Bills or I'm playing against Stefan Diggs. Let's tune into the Bills game. I'm like, oh boy, here goes Stefan Diggs for, yep, a 50 yard touchdown. That's exactly what I thought was going to happen. It's like, he does such a good job, man. I absolutely love Sky and I love Red Zone. He made a, someone asked, like, someone caught, like, tweeted at him. Like, it was, I think it was in the offseason, like, during the playoffs. It was like, okay, serious question how many bathroom breaks do you take? And he said, I have taken one bathroom break in the last seven years. And I think about the amount of beer I drink on a cause during that seven hours of commercial free football. And I'm like, yeah, there's no way. I'm trying to think like how I, okay. So to be fair, when I teach, like I get there at 7am, there, there are days when we're doing, when we're busy, busy, I've gone seven to two without like needing, you know, a break. Um, that's not often, like you said, maybe once or twice in four or five years I've been teaching, but it has happened. Like you just can't be drinking any water. You can't be eating any food. Like you got to really prepare like the dedication that goes into that show. Just outstanding. God bless Scott Hansen. Uh, uh, any, any parting thoughts here? Any, any final thoughts? Uh, a few, none of them probably need to share on the podcast. And we're done recording. You can tell me. Um, okay. Hey, go Braves! It's five nothing in the fourth. Uh, I think uh, Adam Adam Duvall hit a hit a bomb off of Framber Valdez a little bit ago. So, Duvall. greatest last name in the history of last names. Here's to a good World Series. Here's to a good weekend of football. Arizona Fall League, the whole deal. We'll talk to y'all in a couple weeks. <laughs>